Hello and welcome to Crashing the War Party. I am here, as always, with my compatriot in crashing, Daniel Larson, as we continue to press the buttons on that crazy machine they call War Inc. in the imperial city of the United States, Washington, D.C. In our second segment, we are excited to talk with Colonel Doug McGregor about this week's NATO summit in Vilnius, Lithuania, and the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Is it succeeding? Is it failing? And are we getting the straight scoop from the mainstream media? But first, let's shift to another corner of the world, the South Pacific. The islands here were a key battleground in the Allies' war with the Japanese during World War II. For Guam, the U.S. never left. A New York Times story last week highlighted some of the forgotten factoids of Guam, that the U.S. government owns nearly a third of the island's territory, that it is home to Anderson Air Force Base, where B-50 bomber, B-52 bombers deploy on a rotational basis. It is home to a new Marine Corps base that despite being a U.S. territory, most Americans don't really know much about it. Maybe that's because the island is missing from many NGO and U.S. government lists. It's 170,000 residents are considered American citizens, yet they have no vote in the United States presidential elections, no representation in the U.S. Senate. Uh, Guananamian delegates to the United States House of Representatives don't even have a vote on the floor. But yet Guam is considered the spear point in U.S. defenses against China. There's constant military activity on the island, including two giant merchant marine ships that if one gets too close to, they're fired upon, according to New York Times photographer Glenna Gordon, who took pictures of both the military presence and island life during and after the recent typhoon. Um, Dan, this is all pretty depressing. You know, the New York Times was pretty explicit and the the huge military presence there, uh, the fact that it's it's either a resort place or a military town, uh, but the people who, the indigenous people who live there seem to be falling through the cracks um, as second-class citizens. Um, and great power conflict uh, just seems like the massive justification for keeping our military there um, and humming along. Um, what was your response to this this uh, New York Times coverage, I mean, which was was pretty ambitious and 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 very welcome, but I don't know what kind of impact it it, it might be having. Right. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Kelly. I, I was I appreciated the article very much because it it did finally shine a light on uh, on these parts of the United States and and, and countries that are associated with the United States, uh, the the Marianas, the Marshalls, uh, Palau, uh, that most Americans know little or nothing about. It it also shined a, a very useful light on the U.S. imperial role in the Pacific and, and reminding us that we still have these this colonial legacy, this holdover from our uh, overseas expansion going back to the, the war with Spain. Uh, and, and these are things that I think are often forgotten. Of course, the, the Philippines was the, the big prize of that expansionist war. Uh, and of course, they, they were granted independence after World War II, but a lot of the, the other smaller territories uh, remain in that sort of colonial limbo, and so we we need to remember that in, in a a very real sense we're we're talking about uh, our uh, our empire in the Pacific, and it's, that's not just a term uh, you know euphemism or or a, uh, just the term that we happen to prefer. It, it really is an, uh, the the description of of the relationship between the U.S. and these territories. Uh, as you said, they don't have 
uh, equal representation in Congress. They don't have uh, the ability to vote for president. Uh, so they they exist in this this very strange state where they're they're Americans and they're exposed to the risks that come with being part of the U.S. Uh, as as the, the article makes clear, Guam will be one of the first targets in the event of any conflict with China or North Korea. Uh, but but we don't we don't really uh, pay attention to them the rest of the time. Uh, what one of the statistics that I thought was really uh, important and worth noting uh, in the article is the, the, the huge level of military service uh, that people in Guam uh, engage in uh, and, and, and the high price that they pay for that service. Uh, the, the article said that the casualty rate for uh, in the forever wars for people uh, living on Guam is four and a half times the national average. And that, that's a, an important reminder for, for us how heavily the burden of our foreign wars fall on some of the poorest and most ignored parts of the country. Um, I, I hope it does have some impact. I hope some people do start paying attention to the, the exploitative relationship that the U.S. has with these territories and, and with the, the freely associated states uh, as well, uh, because the, these are states that are heavily dependent on us. Uh, and, and Guam, of course, is, is a, a territory that's heavily dependent on uh, the U.S. And there needs to be a, a more equitable relationship uh, between the U.S. And, and these places, because what we see is is not uh, it's really not acceptable that that we we sort of lord it over these islands uh, in the way that we do. What um, one of the things that I thought was really uh, insightful in the piece, uh, Sarah Topol is the the, the reporter uh, writing it. Uh, is that she paid close attention to the, the human costs of uh, of this relationship that the U.S. has with these places. Uh, and one of the things that she uh, she emphasized is that the, the people's needs are largely being neglected. Uh, she, she writes at one point, on my six-week trip around the Pacific, none of the political alliances I saw seemed to serve the local people on whose behalf they supposedly had been crafted. There did not seem to be a clear strategy of regional development, and in the steady drumbeat toward war, the basic tenets of democracy in the Pacific continued fraying, contributing to a legacy of broken promises and distrust. What made it worse was not simply a lack of solutions to their problems, but the metropole's ignorance of the existence of the problem itself. And so I, I hope that this article will uh, remind people and then show people uh, what those problems are uh, so that they can't be ignored so easily anymore. Yeah, I mean, what strikes me is uh, our World War II veterans, unfortunately, are passing on. I mean, this is an, an, an entire era, the greatest generation, um, are in their late 90s, uh, turning 100 um, at this point. Um, this, they are going away, but yet we have a situation here. We have a country, a nation, that is kind of stuck in amber in, in World War II. It's, it, it's a living monument uh, to, to that war. And uh, I'd like to quote, too, from, from Topol's article where she says, the military presence across the island has become so normalized that it's part of the fabric of society. Reminders of wars past and present are ubiquitous. Monuments and veterans cemeteries are around every corner. Signs cautioning pedestrians about unexploded ordnance from World War II are common, and it seems as if everywhere you look, there's a military recruitment office of some kind, 
ROTC is active in high schools and has its own dormitory floor at the University of Guam. Since a third of Guam's land belongs to the Defense Department, it's hard to go anywhere without encountering military fencing or giant radar defense installations that look like white golf balls the size of mansions. Um, you know, uh, aside from the World War II hangover, this reminds me of places across the United States where we have army bases that have pretty much taken over American communities and they are um, decrepit. And I've written about this for Responsible Statecraft. My colleagues have these uh, base communities. Uh, they're predominated by sprawl, predominated by, you know, these old um, shopping plazas, uh, their, their infrastructure, public uh, facilities and educational, the schools are all sort of like second class or worse. And I feel like Guam is one big American military base that is in dire need of upgrading, whether it be this, the, the, the actual buildings that people learn in or the hospitals, the healthcare centers, the shopping, or just the, the attitude of the government towards the people that it seems that the military um, efforts, uh, the business of the military comes first and the people who actually live and work there come second. And it just breaks my heart. And I feel like the New York Times did all, us all a service by not only writing about it, but spending time in the community there and, and, and showing us pictures about life on Guam to remind us that this is being done in our name. And I find it highly hypocritical, you know, coming from uh, a so-called enlightened modern democracy who goes uh, whinges on at all costs about uh, uh, equality, people of color, um, justice, uh, democratic values to maintain communities like this, which clearly have left those people who they profess to want to elevate behind. happy to welcome back Doug McGregor to our show today. McGregor is a retired U.S. Army colonel and government official and author and ubiquitous commentator on the war in Ukraine. He has been consulted on his acumen as a military strategist since his first book, Breaking the Phalanx, which he challenged the Army's status quo with detailed reform proposals for the reorganization of its ground forces. For the last 25 years, McGregor has challenged the orthodoxy of the U.S. military and its leadership and the war policy in Ukraine is no exception. And that's why we're bringing him back on the show today. Thanks for joining us, Doug. Sure, happy to be here. Great, I'm so happy um, that you are returning on Crashing the War Party. Um, the first thing I wanted to ask you was about the cluster munitions that are being sent by the U.S. to Ukraine. Uh, it's been big news this week. What do you think of these weapons and, more importantly, the idea that they are being sent because the U.S. is running low in its own stockpiles of artillery shells? 
Well, I think the key word right now to understand what's happening in Ukraine and, and why people are behaving as they are in Washington and London and other places is desperation. Uh, frankly, uh, everyone is now pushing out of the door whatever they've got in the direction of uh, Kiev in the hope that it will somehow or another help rescue Ukraine from inevitable defeat. And it's kind of interesting to watch because just three, four, five months ago, when you, when we, and, and I was by no means the only one said, look, this, this has no chance of success. Ukraine is doomed. Uh, everyone sort of poured filth and abuse all over us. Now, privately, everyone is saying, oh, you're right. It can't happen. It's not going to work. The cluster munitions themselves <clears throat> are unattractive for a whole range of reasons. First of all, they produce a lot of duds. That means uh, there are lots of people that are going to end up being harmed by these things long after they've been shot. I certainly saw that in 1991. It, it was such a an annoyance for us that we actually asked the artillery to stop using the munitions because it didn't bother us in tanks and armored fighting vehicles, but everyone who was in a wheeled vehicle, trucks, Humvees, and so forth behind us, we're taking losses. The, the equipment was being harmed, or in some cases, people were being harmed. And then after the war, of course, we did have Iraqi children. They were brought to us who picked these things up and thought they were something else. So we thought after the war was over that this would probably go away. It, it just wasn't worth the trouble. And the high explosive uh, warheads were much better. And in addition, we now have today a degree of precision that far exceeds what we had in 91 which means that you don't have to shoot something with lots of munitions that are designed to be area weapons in the hopes that you're going to hit something. You can actually hit what you shoot at. So I think this is just desperation on the part of the administration. The bad news is, of course, it makes us look once again like shameless hypocrites. Yeah. What about what's going on on the battlefield today? I feel like there was a lot of talk about the Ukraine counteroffensive up until like late last month. And uh, is it a media distortion field uh, in, in which we can't really discern whether or not you, this counteroffensive is actually working? Is it failing? What is your sense and what are you reading behind the scenes uh, about what, what the conditions are on the ground? And, or are we just pouring tons of U.S. and Western aid into a sieve there. It's hard for Americans just, you know, kind of dipping into this story to discern what's going on. Well, I, I love that term, distortion field. I'm going to employ that now ad nauseum, and I'll try to endnote you when I do that. <laughs> uh, but the bottom line is we've been living in that field now for over a year. The so-called counteroffensive was a complete and utter disaster. We think the Ukrainians lost between 15 and 20,000 soldiers killed. And once again, when this began, or, or was at least discussed, we tried to make the point that if you look at the defensive structure, the 15 to 25 kilometer security zone in front of the main defensive belts, you understand the links between overhead intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance assets, and various strike systems, conventional artillery, rockets, tactical ballistic missiles, so-called drones, it was very obvious that these people had no chance of getting through. They weren't going to get anywhere. They weren't sufficiently trained. 
And again, this goes back to the larger problem that certainly after the first few months, I would say by the middle of the summer, most of the soldiers in the Ukrainian army that were actually trained and had any experience at all were largely dead or wounded. And the Ukrainian army has never really recovered from those losses because you just don't make more officers, make more NCOs. I mean, by October of 1943, the German army had lost 55,000 officers. And if you look carefully at the situation after October 43, they really weren't capable of very much offensive op or action because they just didn't have the experience. So the, I think right now the lesson of this Ukraine debacle is you can't build effective armed forces on the fly. And again, Americans don't understand that, you know, flesh and blood is always, you know, an unavoidable consequence of going to war. It's it, war is a matter of flesh and blood, but it's also a function of organization, a structure, leadership, culture, uh, discipline, all of these things. And you build these institutions over time. So the whole thing was deeply flawed, but you've got a lot of people on the Hill that still believe that throwing money at something, shoving technology at something is going to create military power. They do it here in the United States. It doesn't work. It never has. And so Ukraine is now, I think, in the worst position it's been from the very beginning. I don't think it has very much left. Somebody said the other day they may have 10 to 20 brigades. Uh, of course, what are we talking about? 2,000 men per brigade or 20, 25,000, 30,000? Uh, they're, they're scraping the bottom of the barrel. Their press gangs are operating all over the country, particularly now in the West, to try and force people into the Ukrainian military. They're meeting with real opposition and resistance wherever they go. Uh, the trains in Germany are arriving every day with Ukrainian refugees, and many of these cars are filled with young men. I mean, the, the, the notion that this is in any way, shape, or form a success for the people of Ukraine is disastrous. We haven't even talked about the millions that have left. So the bottom line is the counteroffensive is over. It's It was dead on arrival, never had a chance. And now we have people in Vilnius talking about uh, reducing the two-step process for membership of Ukraine and NATO to one. And if they go ahead with this, that will guarantee the eventual arrival of Russian troops on the Polish border, because the Russians will simply conclude they can never have a reliably neutral Ukrainian state on their border. They'll think that whatever happens, it will always be subverted with the idea of somehow or another pushing NATO missiles, American missiles, and American capabilities further east. They can't accept that. I want to. I do want to talk about NATO, but I had one more question. I don't know if you saw that Newsweek article by Bill Arkin a week or two ago about the CIA operations in in Ukraine. And the thrust of the piece was more about, you know, the U the the process of gathering information and surveillance under a tricky situation of not being technically an ally of, of Ukraine and not technically at war with, with Moscow and how the CIA is doing all this. But one of the interesting pieces of the, of the article was that there are about a hundred CIA officers supposedly, according to this article and his reporting in Ukraine today, that's no surprise. We've been hearing about this, and the CIA presence there for some time now. We also got some idea from those Discord leaks that there are probably a dozen U.S. special forces 
in the country as well, though that wasn't included in Arkin's piece. Uh, you know, there was that bombing at the cafe uh, in Ukraine uh, a few weeks ago, and there had been some speculation that there had been some at least volunteer, American volunteers killed, maybe even U.S. special forces. You know, I think the American people deserve some clarity on this. Do you have any sense or, or thoughts about the reality of whether or not the United States has some military presence on the ground there that's not being revealed to the American public? Well, actually, I must have missed that Arkin piece. But then again, you know, Arkin is such a neocon that I really don't pay too much attention to what the man publishes. He's on the he's on the opposite team. He wants this war to continue. Yeah. When it when it comes to what have we actually got on the ground over there, I'm sure a hundred is a gross underestimate. Uh, I think there are hundreds of U.S. military in various forms, intelligence and otherwise. We know that some headquarters have been struck and destroyed. It probably resulted in the deaths of, they say, NATO officers, undoubtedly some Americans. All of this has been carefully concealed and kept quiet. We've been down this road before. We went through this before the intervention in Vietnam began in 65, when we had people being shot and killed in Vietnam. Uh, we've had people all over the world uh, for decades operating in, in clandestine settings. So that that's not really a surprise. What people need to understand is that the Russians know Ukraine, just as the Ukrainians know Russians. There's nothing happening in Ukraine that the Russians don't know. There are, there are probably tens of thousands of Russian sympathizers all over the place, and they report constantly. I mean, this is part of the paranoia that affects the Zelensky regime. They're constantly sending out the secret police to arrest people, you know, brutalize people, shoot people, whatever is necessary, because they know their every move is carefully watched. I mean, President Putin was talking uh, recently about so-called decision-making centers. Uh, the question had come up several times over the last several months. Uh, do we hit hit the so-called decision-making centers? We call that command and control centers in the, in the American military. They know where they are. I mean, Zelensky's walking around and breathing because the Russians have decided to let him do so. I'm sorry, but those are the facts. What are we learning? What are we finding out? Well, we're finding out the truth, and we're not reporting it. Because if the intelligence agents who are down on the ground were allowed to really tell the truth, well, we'd pack our bags and get out and make peace. This is time for peace. This is insane. The killing needs to end. It's accomplishing nothing. And, uh, you know, the longer this goes on, the more likely we are finally to see the much ballyhooed but not yet witnessed Russian offensive which will push across the rest of eastern Ukraine. And if necessary, they'll go all the way to the border. There's a lot of pressure on Putin to mobilize the nation. Because the Russian media says, not inaccurately, we're not at war with the Ukrainians. We're at war with NATO and the United States. So let's stop the pretense. Drop it. Let's mobilize and get this over with. This is part of the Prigozhin issue. Prigozhin's attitude, you know, was always that we're, we're not doing enough. We're too slow, too deliberate. The generals don't have fire in the belly, as they call it. You know, that was his message. That was really one of the reasons he did what he did. I think a lot of people in Russia agree with him. That's why this is a good time to end it. But we're making it worse by what's happening in Vilnius right now. We're, we're obstructing the path to some sort of 
ceasefire that would allow us to come to an arrangement, whether we all like it or not, but we need to stop the killing. Thanks for coming on the show. It's good to see you again. Uh, speaking of a ceasefire, speaking of, of how to, to change policy to, to try to bring this to a conclusion, uh, how, how concerned are you that, that things might end up going the other way, that, that the U.S. or some of its allies would then try uh, direct intervention in the event of more Ukrainian defeats, uh, that, that there would be an attempt to try to bail them out uh, through direct intervention? Well, that's always been my concern. Uh, ever since we listened to uh, David Petraeus talk about a coalition of the willing that could go in, of course, he's also the same man that predicted a resounding success and victory for the Ukrainians and gave his usual description of warfare a la 1942 to explain it, which makes no sense at all today. So uh, I think it's a real problem. Uh, the, the, right now, what I've been hearing, and I'm interested to know what comes out of the meeting in Vilnius, is that the Turk, or excuse me, the Poles and Lithuanians are talking about some sort of joint intervention. And that strikes me as uh, complete lunacy, but they seem to think that uh, they can do it. I think they've been drinking their own bathwater. You know, the big lies, Russians aren't that good. Russians can't do this, can't do that, even though the chief of staff of the Polish army has warned them that the Russian troops are excellent and uh, we should not underestimate them. But nevertheless, there's talk about going into Western Ukraine. Now, these people, these people, remember, also have unfulfilled agendas. These are people in Eastern Europe that are still unhappy about the consequences of two world wars. Uh, they're looking backward in history. They, they don't like the Russians, and they think they should be running the show in Eastern Europe. And as I told one just the other day on a similar podcast, well, if you feel strongly about that, you should get out of NATO. Because if you try to go in to East, Western Ukraine and pretend that you are somehow or another operating independently of NATO, the Russians won't buy it. They will view you as a Trojan horse for NATO. So if that's what you want to do, you need to walk away from the alliance because I can tell you the rest of the alliance will not go with you. That's not going to happen. Now, I don't know what we would tell our troops on the ground in Poland or Romania to do. I worry that foolishly we might tell them to go in and support them because we don't have the ammunition on hand. We don't have the supplies. We don't have the developed logistical infrastructure. We don't have the staying power. You know, we're not prepared to fight a major war. But, you know, I suppose there's an outside chance that something stupid like that could occur. But in the meantime, how do you get it across to these people in Poland and Lithuania that you have an agenda that's yours, that's not NATO's, that's not an agenda in Washington or it shouldn't be, and uh, if you do this, you're going to end up uh, regretting it because the Russians will view that as an unambiguous NATO threat and they will strike. And they're probably going to strike in uh, Lithuania and Poland. And that would be, in my judgment, catastrophic. Well, because at that point, you would have uh, all of the, the people praying for uh, a wider war. Uh, some of them have already been praying for it and, and would then have the, uh, the pretext for that. Uh, that they've been wanting. Um, looking at uh, U.S. policy, NATO policy uh, in this war, uh, it, it seems unlikely that it's going to change anytime soon, but what, what would need to change, uh, in your view, uh, to, to bring this uh, to a conclusion, to, to establish some kind of ceasefire? 
Well, first, keep in mind that uh, our friend Schultz in Berlin is on very thin ice. He's about as popular as Macron. I think his numbers are down around 32, 33% approval rating. <clears throat> the situation, <clears throat> excuse me, in uh, France is obvious. It's catastrophic. So those are two of the large military powers in NATO. Uh, I don't see the Swedes, the Danes, and the Dutch mobilizing and marching east. You know, I, I don't see uh, any interest in Austria, which is not in NATO, but is part of the EU. Uh, the Hungarians have made it clear what they will and will not accept. The Bulgarians have now stood up and said they're not going to sign on for this deal with Ukraine in NATO. They had massive demonstrations. The populations in Romania do not want this. They're not interested in going to war. So you have a globalist elite that is really looking at this Ukrainian patient, which is almost comatose, and they're trying to give it a haircut and a shave and say, let's go, let's go, and we'll rescue humanity. It's not going to work. So even if the globalist elite say, we must respond, it's not going to happen in Europe. The Europeans will not support this. You saw what happened in the Netherlands. That's that's one brick out of the edifice. We're going to see more of that in the future. The problems in Europe are far more grievous than anything happening in Eastern Europe. And that's something the Europeans know, something that I think a lot of us in the United States know. We've got far, far more important things here to deal with than in Europe. But the globalist elites want to continue this, and they're going to do everything in their power to sustain it. I just don't think it can happen. So if the Ukraine, if the Poles and Lithuanians are foolish and go in there, which and we would be very stupid to let them do it, <clears throat> they're not going to get the kind of support that perhaps they think in the backs of their minds they will get. So now you want a ceasefire? Washington can produce that instantly. All Washington has to do is send a note to Moscow and say, we are now withdrawing all of our personnel from Ukraine because they know that we have people on the ground over there, everybody. All Americans come out. Secondly, we are now suspending any further aid in any form to Ukraine, number two. At that point, the Russians would meet and talk. But short of that, there will be no talks because there's no reason for them to believe us in anything we say. So those two things would have to happen immediately. And I think if we did that, we would then have to call the British uh, back, to, back to barracks and say enough's enough. Uh, the rest of the Europeans won't be an issue in my judgment. Doug, do you see any tension in uh, Washington and in the administration in terms of wh which way to go on this, a, a diplomatic path or continue um, the, 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 the road to, to war? Or is everyone on the, the uh, Blinken, Victoria Newland bandwagon which seems to be headed towards some sort of like idyllic regime change policy uh, that we all know is never going to work, but they seem like hurtling towards that conclusion. Um, do you think there are any elements in the Biden administration that might be saying, eh, maybe it's time to talk? Well, as a general observation, remember that uh, we have government by donor. And most of the donors are behind the Newland Blinken insanity. Uh, that's number one. Number two, sure, there are people in the White House right now on the staff that have said, look, uh, this isn't going well. 
we don't want this happening next year uh, during an election campaign. We need to find a way to bring this to closure. There are people like that. You have people, uh, I think, on the Hill, privately behind the scenes that are more sober minded than Lindsey Graham or Chuck Schumer or any of those people. But in the meantime, in addition to the donor problem, you have this combination of what I call arrogance and ignorance. A lot of these people have never known what they were dealing with from day one. Go back and look at the initial assumptions. Well, once we go in there and the Russians realize the sanctions are biting, the Russian economy will collapse. Their currency will go under. And they'll have no, no choice but to deal with us. By the way, uh, you know, their military is weak. They're incompetent. They can't do anything. None of that made any sense. It, it, it didn't take, you know, it, it did not take stock of any of the realities of the Russian state, the Russian people, the Russian military. So here we sit, uh, what, not, not quite 18 months later, but close, and we're staring at an absolute catastrophe. Now, the, the interesting thing, and this is sad, but this is true, most Americans don't care. They're not watching what's happening. Ukraine might as well be somewhere in the Antarctic. Uh, that's the view for most Americans, which means that they're easily seduced by whatever Washington says. And as long as nothing happens to them, well, then what's the problem? I mean, this is the problem on the financial side with all the borrowing and the national sovereign debt with the offshoring of jobs. We just go down the list. This is a huge problem. Americans are complacent because they don't feel the bite. <clears throat> the problem is that if this is not stopped, what, what occurs in Washington will be far worse than anybody imagines because the collapse overseas of Ukraine will be something no one can conceal. And we will watch NATO disintegrate very rapidly. It's already on the verge of disintegration behind the scenes. People over there aren't stupid. They know what's coming, but they're unwilling to act because, again, they want to be on the good side of the United States. They want to remain tied to us because they're afraid. Well, they're about to figure out that being tied to us isn't going to make any difference if you're stupid. And the Ukrainians have been very stupid. The Poles are right up there with them and now the Lithuanians. And I think that's going to sink in. And then Washington has another catastrophic failure on its hands. What will Americans say or do? Well, I can't imagine them being happy about it. And it will have consequences here. People don't seem to understand, you know, the Russians can uh, escalate horizontally. You know, we don't, you don't like what's happening? Well, stand by. You may not like what's coming in Mexico, in the Caribbean basin. Uh, the Russians have a lot of influence and power. Well, you haven't heard much out of North Korea. That can change. North Korea has always been close to Moscow, not Beijing. That's a complete misnomer. The Chinese dislike North Korea intensely. But North Korea has been a very useful tool for Moscow. All they have to do is send it some new missile bodies, some new rocket engines. And the fools up in North Korea are prepared to do all sorts of things. Nobody is thinking like that. No. All of this, all of this can have a very negative impact here at home. So hopefully the people in the White House who are sober-minded and have concluded this is a failure will finally become ascendant. But right now they're not. They, they are just carping on the sidelines. And again, we've got to go back to who are the big money people on the left? Who are the donors? What do they want? They're the ones sponsoring the people on the ground in Kiev and also in Washington and New York City. They're driving the train and in London.
Yep. That's a great point. And we've done a lot of work at Responsible Statecraft um, exposing a lot of the think tanks who oh, have yeah. connections to defense contractors and all of these reports and all of these op-eds and all of the messaging that you see in the media is brought to you by the defense industry um, via think tanks that are supposedly, you know, academic institutions that are uh, just framing the policy uh, for the future. And so, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of shenanigans. And you're right. It all goes back to money and funding. Well, remember, the people in the defense industries are in business and, and their job is to take all the money they can get out of Washington and stuff it into their pockets. That's about it. And so everything is viewed by them as a wonderful opportunity. Although I suspect that somewhere in the sort of distant realm of CEO land, there are people now who are probably privately expressing concerns. Yeah. You know, but I haven't heard any. That doesn't mean they haven't done it. But right now, the money is uh, is intoxicating. I mean, if you look at the billions that are flowing, and as we've talked about this before, and you know this, most of this cash doesn't go to Ukraine. It ends up being recycled through the washing machine right here into the pockets of right. most people in D.C. and elsewhere. So it's an old story, but uh, it's dangerous now. And we don't even know what people would do in a real crisis. I mean, once you have tens of thousands of Russian troops moving west, they cross the Dnieper River and start moving to secure Odessa and other columns are moving further west towards the Polish border. What kinds of insane things are we likely to do? Yeah. Well, we'll show those Russians. Uh, Alert our nuclear force. Good luck with that. That's crazy. We don't want to go there. That's back to what Dan was saying. This could escalate very rapidly to much higher levels, not because we're strong, but because we're weak. Well, you certainly don't sugarcoat anything, <laughs> Doug. I'm going to excuse myself and jump out of the window. <laughs> well, please don't do that. <laughs> um, okay. I would love for you to come back on the show and have some better news for us. Maybe in a few months, six months from now, let us only hope that things might go in a better direction. But I, I really appreciate you coming on the show with us today. Sure. Thank you. And thank you, Dan. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world one episode at a time.